So I want to become a dog trader. Oh, yeah? But when I look, I just don't know who to join. Yeah. It's a sea of acronyms, and it appears to be unregulated. <laughs> I want to know my money is well spent with me joining a team of dynamic, ethical professionals who have the same goals as me. I also want to be taught using the most up-to-date, science-led data. So where do I go? You heard of Pat? It's a place to go to become the most knowledgeable, skilled, ethical, science-based dog training instructor you can be. It's also one of the few organisations good enough to be a member of the Animal Behaviour and Training Council. The Professional Association of Canine Trainers, PACT for short, is here to help you become the best accredited dog trainer you can be. PACT gonna help you reach your goals. PACT is the place you need to go. Oh, PACT if you love dogs like we do too. PACT we are indeed the place for you. PACT it's time to take that leap of faith. PACT delay no further while you wait. Come find us at packed-dogs.com. Hello, bookshelvers. Steve here. And before we get back to the podcast, I want to tell you about something exciting that we have just launched. It's called Packed Lunches. And basically, the idea is that every Tuesday around lunchtime, we're going to deliver to your inbox straight from us some dog musings, could be a blog, could be an anecdote, could just be a basic brain fart about dogs from either Nat, myself, Corin, or indeed Jay. Um, the idea is that we get to talk about things across the week that have um, pricked our ears up, things that maybe we've seen on TV, on social media, something like that about dogs, and get us all thinking a little bit more about dogs. So if that sounds fun, all you have to do is go to our website, which is packed-dogs.com. That's packed-dogs.com. You'll see a little box on the homepage there. Pop in your details and you'll be added to the list. Can't wait to talk more dogs with you. Barks from the bookshop and we're gonna learn about our dogs and barks from the bookshop and we're gonna learn together. Barks from the bookshop and we're gonna learn about our dogs and barks from the bookshop till we're gone. Barks from the bookshop and we're gonna learn about our dogs and barks from the bookshop and we're gonna learn together. Barks from the bookshop, we're gonna learn about our dogs and barks from the bookshop. Howdy doody. Oh god, I need help. Apparently that's all I say nowadays. Did I get it from you? Why, why do you think howdy doody is all you say nowadays? Well, I keep going up. To, I said howdy doody to Jay the other day and he said, what? What? Just what? Uh, yeah, like what? He didn't understand what I'd said to him. Okay. And then I just repeated it instead of changing it to just hello. Where did you get howdy doody from? I don't know. I, I think it might be you. It is funny how you pick up on these things, isn't it? I definitely have picked up on a few things, especially as I've got older. We should probably introduce ourselves, actually. We've oh. gone straight into this, haven't we? Um. Hi, hi, gang. It's hey. us. Um, it is. It is I, Steve, and today uh, I am joined by the lovely Sea Dog. Hi. Who is Corin? Uh, why, why? 
It was Ta- Tash, Corin's best friend, named their sea dog, and I've just uh, I've just continued that um, tradition. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. How are you, Corin? You good? I'm good. Good, 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 good. So you've got a problem with um, using overusing the word howdy doody. Well, I'm just thinking about it now, and I'm quite sure you've sent it in text form to me. So I think it is you. I think you're the culprit. Does sound like something I do, although it I can't does. remember doing it. But I have. I was just about to say I have definitely picked up on on certain phrases and things mannerisms as i've got older that um annoy me but i can't stop doing them one is the the snort laugh the, mm. you know after uh, i can't i see i can't even yeah. do it accidentally that's sort of but if i laugh heartily if i have a good old belly guffaw then i quite often do a little little snort and i swear to god that started as me taking the mickey out of the snort laugh and then it, it turned into me having one almost like some sort of cruel you know like your mum and dad used to say don't don't make that face or the wind will change the wind will change <laughs> yeah. and it'll stay like that i think that happened well didn't everyone do that with the word lol yep. ironically were were saying it out in real life and not just in text and then suddenly it that was just normal it stuck yeah 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 i'm not a fan of lols and i do say it you do say it a lot i do don't i wow lols what do you reckon, bookshelvers? Have you got any annoying habits that you've developed? They've either been given to you by a partner, friend, or you've just developed over time. We'd like to hear about them. Uh, email Corin at... <laughs> <laughs> um, I got a funny story that I wanted to tell everyone that Come you're on. involved in, Corin. Oh, no, um, I don't know what this is. The other day, um, we were feeling... We were driving along, weren't we, in the old in the old Fiat Doblo, in the mighty Doglo, as we like to call the it. Doglo. Um, and we were feeling a little bit, you know, sometimes you get, um, we normally get this on a Tuesday because we have Mondays off and Tuesday's work day. So we, we hammer the work on a Tuesday and we get, we, we often quite feel apprehensive, don't we? We get that feeling of like nervous energy. We've got puppy classes buzzing. on a Tuesday night. Yeah, buzzing is good. Good way of describing it. And we're driving along and uh, a song came on the radio. Um, I can't remember what the song's called, but it kind of goes, why waste your time? Um, you know you're going to be Right mine. on time. It's right it on right time. time? You got the song wrong. I got yeah. the wrong song. So, oh, it's right on, right on time. You know the one. You know the one bookshelvers. And we decided there's a bit wow. of... <laughs> That's it. Not too loud. Con's <laughs> got a new microphone. I've got to, got to keep her uh, in check here. Um, we... Um, we decided as a bit of uh, couples therapy, it would be really good as we're driving along to try and shout the um, why waste your time It's still chorus. the wrong song. Is it not? Why are we? Yeah, what? Why waste your time? No? Right on time. Okay, right on time. We decided we're going to try and shout <laughs> the it? right on time. I'm getting myself It doesn't matter, does it? No. Um, as loud as we could. I'm sure it's why waste your time. Anyway, we're in the car, cut a long story short, we're in the car, driving along, and we're both screaming this chorus as loud as we could. Uh, and it worked. It did. It served to um, to calm us down. Oh, well, actually, you sent me into a, a fit of hysterics. Well, it was a moment when we were driving along and I was screaming it and there was a woman walking next With all of his might. And this woman saw him, looked very concerned, then saw how much I was laughing, and then I saw the worry in her face disappear. <laughs> <laughs> in some sort of abusive relationship. Oh, oh dear. dear, dear, dear. Howdy doody indeed. Oh, ah, do come in, Mr. Dog. Thank you. Great to see you again. Yes. Take a seat. <clears throat> so I understand you've been having some issues in the park. Do tell. 
Oh, I don't know what's gone wrong in my life. I've always loved balls since the day I was a pup, and my mum always gives me one when I go out. But now, I want them all. Yes, I see. That really is a problem, hmm. I could see how that could land you in some trouble, yes. And yes, I know, it's really, really hard, but you can't just go grabbing bollies in the park, yo. Well, Doctor, what? What the hell am I supposed to do? Other rollers throwing balls right there in front of you. The thing to know, I am a bloody border collie. I need to break this because I'm sick of being bully wally. My prescription is to stay clear of the papa now. Do some sniffing, take a break before you cause a row. It isn't great to wander around all day this high when all is said and done. I know you're just a hurdy guy, but you can't just go grabbing bollies in the park. No, you can't just go grabbing bollies in the park. No, you can't just go grabbing bollies in the park. But you can't just go grabbing bollies in the park. No. Um, okay, gang. So um, we're not joined by Nat today, and Nat is um, not very well. Bless her. She's got the bullies. I imagine she's the illest person I know. Uh, <laughs> Nat is. I imagine to to a sort of microbe or a bit of bacteria or something. Do you remember those human fly things when you used to dress up in a Velcro <laughs> suit and just sort of run at it and jump <laughs> and stick to it? I reckon that's what Nat is to uh, to a flu virus. <laughs> she's gonna love you for that one. <laughs> She'll laugh. I hope she will anyway. Um uh yeah. So um so it's just me and you, Corin. And we are doing um so it's not gonna be a book review show uh this week, bookshelvers. Um, but we do have a very, very special guest to talk to us today. So today we're gonna to be talking to the amazing Andrew Hale, who is a returning guest to yes. the podcast, has been on before. We're doing a bit of a run of um returning guests at the moment which is nice um it's nice to be in that position where we've got some nice friends coming back on the podcast um returning authors as well um so i'm going to read a few andrew facts out andrew facts um and then we'll do a little interview what do you reckon sounds good okay so here we go andrew facts andrew hale bsc iscp dip k9 prac do you know what all that means <laughs> That's the International School of Canine Psychology, ISCP, one of those things anyway, is a certified canine behaviorist. He is the behavior consultant for Pet Remedy. Oddly enough, sorry, I always go on a tangent when I'm reading these things up. I really love the smell of Pet Remedy. I really, really like the smell of Pet Remedy. So I think they should release it as sort of aftershave, (laughs) do a sexy advert. I don't know. I, I, I would buy it. I would buy it. Anyway. I wonder if Eden. Do not it. sure it will work for me. Just saying, it makes me feel really calm. So you know. Well, calm. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, so he is the behaviour consultant for Pet Remedy, and proud to be an expert advisor for canine arthritis management. Cam, hooray! And kids around dogs trainer. Hooray! Debbie's organisation now. He also works to support many dog welfare and rescue organisations. With a background in human psychology. Andrew is passionate about exploring the emotional experience that lies behind behaviour, both in dogs and humans around them. Andrew has played a leading role in the UK dog training and behaviour community, having been the chair of the Association of Into Dogs and was the driving force behind the UK Dog Behaviour and Training Charter. In 2020, Andrew started the Dog Centred Care Facebook page, 
which focuses on supporting a dog-led, emotionally-centered approach to providing the best care and support for dogs and their caregivers. On this platform, he has been hosting online conversations with some of the world's leading scientists, researchers, trauma experts, dog professionals, and veterinarians. Andrew has been invited to speak at many of the leading behavior conferences and has presented at esteemed events such as the London Vet Show and the Association of Cat and Dogs Conference. Andrew has also appeared on many of the leading podcasts and been invited to write for leading publications. So, Andrew's a busy boy. He is indeed. I do enjoy the uh, Dog Centred Care Facebook page. For anyone that hasn't joined it, it's well worth going on there and joining. It's a, it's a nice place to discuss things all dog-centric, all um, uh, sort of emotion-led type things. Lots of people talking about ideas on there, and those lives are very informative for anyone who's into dogs, not just necessarily dog professionals. I think it's... Um, well worth a visit. What do you reckon? Indeed. We've got some interesting questions for Andrew today. We Hopefully do. we get some good discussion going. And uh, I also would like to ask Andrew to tell the story of when he fell over recently because it does make me laugh a lot. You are, you are like, it's one of your most favourite things seeing someone fall over or some sort of, some sort of misfortune. I've noticed that you and your family are like, you just... You recount the story of when your dad has like, Corin's dad has quite often fallen over, it seems. But they often, when you're around for a family dinner um, around the Lawses, um, quite often the subject of Ian, Corin's dad, falling over comes up and everyone just laughs as if it's just happened. Like <laughs> everyone relives the moment and just cracks up. Um, you, you dine out on those. I do. You I do. still... Uh, Tash fell over at school during a hockey game and I wasn't even there and I can still laugh about that. <laughs> you weren't there? <laughs> I wasn't even there. <laughs> so, so even the second-hand information is good enough just oh, to make dear. you giggle. Yeah. Right. So you get a little insight there, bookshelves into um, the sadomasochist that I live with. little outlet. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> I did confess to Andrew. I sent him a message. I said, I do hope you're okay, otherwise I'd have to feel guilty. And he said he was fine. I don't think I've fallen over much in front of the other one. No, please do. You did laugh the other day when Peaches coughed in my face. Oh, yeah. And when you were playing with her and she let go of the toy and you smacked yourself in the face. That was, that was really good too. Moving on. Um, okay, should we let Andrew in? Yes. So we thought it would be really nice to talk to you about Crufts because we do have this every year, this kind of um, ethical um, quandary about whether or not we should we should go there. Um, uh, and some people might not even know why there would be an ethical quandary as to whether or not you should go to Crufts or not. But if you if you walk around there, if you do have a dog centered approach to how you view dogs, how do you, you view dog behavior? environments dogs find themselves in it can be a little bit stressful um i think to say the least wandering around yeah i find it challenging myself sometimes being there some of the things you see and i know that we've had members come along on the stand before and uh 
They look a little bit shocked, actually, that it's not at all what they were expecting. But there is there is some good things that happen there, obviously. But I wanted to hear your thoughts, Andrew, and, and maybe some tips about anyone who is going for the first time, how to look after themselves when they're there. Well, hi, both of you. Great to see you. Uh, <laughs> we never do that. Craftsism, it was a tricky one for me, actually. So I, I've, I've, this will be my, I think it's my third year going. And, and I go in a capacity of um, being the behavioural consultant for Pet Remedy, which is a natural calming product. <clears throat> so uh, it is tricky, I think, for us, because when I went, I did see all the things that I thought I would see and I wouldn't like totally. I saw a lot of stressed dogs. I saw a lot of people putting uh, human need and ego potentially ahead of how the dogs are feeling. Mm. Uh, so you see a lot of these things. Uh, and it's always tricky. Uh, we, we were talking off air about, you know, is it better to kind of make a statement by not being there? Or is it better to be there and try and affect some change? Uh, my view on that when I went did shift to the latter. Mm. Because especially with being there with Pet Remedy, which is a which is a calming product, and, it, and we really put a lot of emphasis on the on the emotional needs. Um, the fact that people were coming to the stall gave an invitation for a conversation about things. And actually, last year we launched our um, our uh, active dog scheme. So it was like very much about education for people whose dogs are quite active and and people who want to do the dog sports and want to do the things they really enjoy. And understanding actually that to get the task bit done. Uh, the science does tell us that a, that a dog is more likely to do things well if they're physically and emotionally, not just physically, well regulated. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it's a great opportunity. And we, I, I must have spoke, I must have spoke to hundreds. I was only there the Thursday and Friday, but I spoke to hundreds of people and talking about, they were like, oh, yeah, but my dog's got to be really fizzed up. And I'm like, actually, the science shows us it's the opposite. Actually, mm. if your dog's really in the zone, done some free work first, is ready they've got i use my doors of the brain analogy so if you imagine the brain has lots of little doors in it we need as many doors to stay open for the dog to have a chance of being present and and be able to kind of think about what they need to do you know we know that pain trauma stress they're big door closers uh and often the stuff that we train they're the first doors to start closing right and that's that's what we know so so it's really cool to talk to people about this stuff and they and for them to get it so so it is always a challenge, isn't it? And I think um, the, the other good thing for me was, especially in this, especially nowadays after COVID, is just meeting people in person. Yeah, yeah, yeah and just giving them a little bit of a, a finger poke and say, "Oh my God, you're real. That's great," <laughs> uh, and having a cuddle and um, uh, and and just connecting on a very human level. Our community, it's not just our community. I think social media more generally has become. A challenging place and uh and uh it, it's nice just to be reminded of of our fellow colleagues who are, who are um you know uh working really hard to try and affect some change and so so that was a big benefit yeah i agree and I'm we have to be where the public are yeah. that's the main thing the, the, the public there's a lot of general public there who are just there doing the shopping and the mm. shopping is great yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. See me coming back on the train. Uh, you know, I'm gonna I might take a little um a little suitcase this time, I think, because I was just absolutely loaded down. You buy all this? <laughs> but uh yes, yeah, so we have to kind of be where the public are. And uh if we're not, then they're just gonna keep hearing the same stuff. Yeah. 
I agree. And 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 on the note of uh, how challenging social media can be, especially those with uh, views we don't share. I even had conversations on our stand um, with people that are dog trainers or thinking about becoming dog trainers and they currently held different views from us but the conversation was had it was had with smiles it was had you know everyone was okay you know whether that person's then had a little seed planted you know where that ends up but you know if it was an argument it certainly wouldn't change anyone's mind would it no and this is the beautiful thing about being in person Mm. i think because you pick up on um uh, you pick up on people's facial expressions. You kind of uh, get that feedback as you talk. Uh, you can have those civil discussions. Yeah. It's, it's the whole kind of supermarket trolley versus car. You know, when you're in your car and somebody cuts you up, you can't see them very well. So that's why it's all kind of fruity language and fingers in the air. Yeah. Whereas if you bump into somebody with your supermarket trolley, you're like, terribly sorry after you. I, I accidentally yeah. cut someone up the other day in a car. And I could see in my rearview mirror that this dude was, uh, he was, he was wishing harm upon me. He probably wanted to wipe out my entire lineage, I'll be honest. And I got to the point, you know, you get to like the awkward point where, where he's going one way, you pulled up to a junction, he's going one way, you're going the other. So you pull up next to each other. He pulled up next to me and he looked over and I just just kind of looked over and went, sorry, you know, just give a little, sorry, mate. And I just immediately saw him be disarmed. You know, like, it's okay. It's all right. But it is that, like, being in that metal box is much like social media, isn't it? You don't you don't get this uh, this opportunity to to look at facial expressions, be close to someone, you know, look at these little micro expressions that, that you need for communication. It's a fascinating topic, really. Oh, there's a, there's a, a funny meme there, I'm sure, of somebody entering the social media world whilst also being in a car. Yeah. <laughs> Too much anger in one yeah. place. <laughs> I was, um, we've got a crossroads at the top of our road and I was, the lights had changed and I wanted to cross it, but this coach driver had pulled in into the yellow box that I couldn't cross. And I looked at him and he just blew me a kiss. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, it dis- and it did disarm me. I, I, was, I was going to mouth something a, a bit fruity, but I blew me a kiss. We're, we're okay. We're okay. Obviously, when you say a bit fruity, you're just going to shout tangerine at him or something like that. <laughs> yes, of course. Tangerine. Of course. Bananas. <laughs> I see what you've written down there. You talking about shopping, Andrew. He's about to, he's never let this go. Uh, my first trip to, trip to Crufts, I might have uh, made a slightly expensive purchase, but we're on a coat. A £400 jacket. I, where, and the hood doesn't work. Can I just point no, that it out? Works, it works incredibly well. <laughs> Too well, if anything. The hood comes down to here. If it goes over my head, it does cover um, up to my chin. <laughs> <laughs> Although Corin does look like a very sort of sophisticated kind of Doctor Who type character when you wear it, so it does look good. But four hundred quid, it wasn't. It's not. It's not even dog related. I believe it was three fifty. To be fair, three fifty. Well, <laughs> well. See, I'm 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 the bargain person, so um, I, I I just buy tons of stuff that's under a tenner. Yeah. Um, my husband sends me a list as well that I take with me, and I and I, I and I haven't really managed to find anything on that yet. But but uh, yeah, so I'm always looking for the bargains. It's like yeah, I've got three dogs, but we can have ten collars. <laughs> uh, you can never have too many leads, right? Is it you can never have too many dog coats? Is Kieran's list just a list of like Dolly Parton stuff, and you just he's just exactly like, that. and you're like, I'm going to Crufts, Kieran, and he's just like, I don't care. Maybe one day there'll be some Dolly Parton stuff. <laughs> You know, when uh, I think it's Pets at Home, where it came out with her Dolly Parton range of dog stuff. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, that was a celebratory day for, for 
<laughs> I do always think of him whenever I see Dolly, actually. <laughs> I do as well. I do as well. The thing is, people presume that it's me, I think, sometimes, because people tag me into stuff with Dolly Parton. It's actually my husband. But, <laughs> but um, anyway, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm under that same yeah. umbrella now, I think. But uh, <laughs> he's off to Dollywood later this year, actually, with his Dolly Parton friends. I've thought I'd we let them go off on their own. Do their <laughs> One day so a he's, year. <laughs> he's on a pilgrimage in November to... Dollywood? Where's yeah, Dollywood? He's like a pilgrimage. Yeah, he's going to Dollywood. He's going to Tennessee. He's going to Pigeon Forge. And he's going to do all the... Wowzers. So yeah. Dollywood, I'm get, this is my ignorance here. Dollywood must be the, the Dolly Parton version of Graceland, is it? Yeah, for sure. And yeah. it's... Um, uh, yeah, so she built that actually... Um, so that she could give jobs to local people in her home area because she's from the Smoky Mountains and stuff. So she's just, um, I said to Kieran, I hope all those people over there really value all the money that you spend on her merchandise uh, to keep them all in. in because, uh, 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 But yeah. What a lovely, nice, happy circle of money though, right? Yeah. 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 I, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> what a lovely, yeah. happy circle of your money. <laughs> yeah, well, it's out, it's out a bit, yeah, but, but um, it's, you know, it's nice for him. You know, he has all her records on every format in every colour. Uh, so, yeah, that's the point. Does he collect vinyl? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Oh, amazing. Oh, uh, yeah. Amazing. And uh, she just released all her back catalogue on new vinyl. Really? The same as the old vinyl, but, but got the new yeah, ones. but different color. Yeah, you gotta, <laughs> gotta get them all. It's like Pokemon, isn't it? Oh dear. So yeah, I you mean, know, I was just going to say, Dolly Parton. Actually, one of her quotes is something I use in my emotional health workshops, and uh, and it's a really good one. And I think it's a good reminder for us all, actually, about what we do, and that is find out who you are and do it on purpose. Nice. Uh, that's really cool and very deep because the first bit is the hard bit. Find out who you are. One of the things I ask a lot when I do the kind of workshops and things is, who are you, actually? It's an important question we have to ask because often our own belief system around ourselves, you know, yeah, who we see as ourselves, those narratives have been put in there by 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 the judgments and expectations of others. Uh, and, and we get detached from self <clears throat> quite early on in our lives, actually. And, and then... Uh, and then we find that we are trying to somehow adapt self to be approved of or to kind of avoid those judgments and that kind of thing. And this ties in very much with uh, with us as professionals. It's really important that we ask that question, not only who am, how am I, but who am I as a professional? Because when I <clears throat> turn up, when we turn up to see a client, if, if that foundation isn't really good, uh, we're already opening ourselves up to to some problems because uh you know i support a lot of colleagues actually and it's a common theme this kind of thing right the first hour of being with my client i must speak a lot because i've got to tell them let them know that i know what i'm talking about and that i'm good enough mm-hmm. and it's a lot braver to think actually for me with my me, my clients i want them to talk for the first hour because actually mm-hmm. i know why i'm there mm-hmm. and i know what i'm there to do I want to hear from them first, actually. But that takes a bit of doing if you don't know entirely why it is you're there or who you are as a professional. I just want to throw that in because that really ties into that Dolly quote, find out who you are. And that's a big thing sometimes because we're buried often underneath our trauma, life experiences, our our challenges, those negative voices that kind of um, swirl around. Um, and, uh, And especially for us in our job, I think, because we... 
we turn up to the challenges of others on a daily basis. Yeah. Very few yeah. people pick up the phone when they're at the beginning, it's like when it's in crisis. Yeah. Uh, and um, so, uh, and we want to work, especially for us on uh, how we all work. We want to work in a kind and an empathetic and compassionate way. So it's even more important then that we have some element of emotional foundated safety ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I completely agree. So, Andrew, based on what you've just said, if somebody is just getting into dog training and they maybe don't know who they are as a professional yet, what would what advice would you give to someone so they haven't quite figured out who they are yet? They're still doing a lot of their learning. I would say I think it's not just for those coming in. I think anybody mm. is a question that's really worth asking because there is a disconnect between what we know, as in our knowledge and mm-hmm. skill set. And how we value our worth to deliver it. Mm-hmm. Those two things are separate, you see? Yeah. And that's the second bit that we have to think about. And uh, and this is why I think a lot of uh, a lot of us, we've all been there, um, can can have that kind of imposter syndrome, feel we're not good enough. Um, we uh, take a huge amount of mm, unfair responsibility for outcomes, actually, on our shoulders. And uh, uh, so I think... Um, Starting off from a place, in, in my opinion, whether you're tra- a dog trainer, uh, a behaviorist or whatever it is that you do, uh, there is an element of us being a counsellor in a way mm-hmm. because, you know, we're holding space, we're turning up. We're, we're Actually, our job is to turn up and bear witness to and potentially influence the behavior of another living sentient being. Oh, my God, It's when you think about it, it's nuts, mm. right? It's a big thing. Then we're not just talking about the dog, we're talking about the human being. Mm. So I think um, uh, one of the golden rules, really, from a human point of view, from a human therapy point of view, is that in order to do that, you have to be in as well-regulated and connected place as you can. So I think we all need to invest more in ourselves and actually think about self-compassion more and and think about what that means and and finding different ways that we can ground ourselves and and be clear in our mind what it is we think we're doing professionally. So for me, then, uh, I, I don't do training classes and, and I, I, I do behave, behavior work specifically on a one to one kind of level. But <clears throat> um, in my head, I think like my job, the reason you paid me is so that uh, I can support your awareness of your dog's lived experience and in that process i will i will make myself available to your lived experience too so i'm very clear about that as well Mm. and i think if we are turning up thinking uh i am here to fulfill the expectations of my client we're already on rocky ground i think because that's an almost impossible task Mm. uh you know so i think these are things to consider this is why we need to think, who am I? That, that's the human bit. But as a professional, what are my values? What are my belief systems? What are my negotiables? What things am I prepared to negotiate? What are my non-negotiables? Uh, what are my boundaries? You know, boundaries are really important. Uh, personally, I, I don't think personal or professional boundaries are any different. I think boundaries are boundaries. And it's just what you're let in, what you're let out. So these are kind of things that we need more education on as, as professionals because we can find ourselves being put into very vulnerable situations mm-hmm. because for every person that knows you, there's a different version of you. Okay. And the person who is closest to you probably has the closest version of you. So my husband probably knows me more than anybody. 
But when you think about it, then is you've got all those different people who have different expectations of you, who expect a lot of you in a positive way, you judge you negatively, whatever it is. And it would be crazy to try and adjust ourselves to try and fulfill all those things. But many of us do. And, I, and I'm a recovering people pleaser myself. Uh, and that's just a general life thing. But even as a, as a client, then as a, as a professional working with the general public, when we get to a certain age, uh, our brain wants to kind of close the doors a little bit and create uh, what we call a safe worldview. So it's like, right, OK, I've learned all this stuff. This is my belief system. This is my value system. And that belief system includes how you believe about self, not just what you believe about other stuff. And um, the brain doesn't then, at a certain point in our kind of um, uh, our, our adult life, doesn't want to have to reevaluate that very much. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's why cognitive reevaluation is challenging. So, and we have to practice that. We have to be better at that. We have to learn that. We have to change our relationship with judgment. We have to change our relationship with these different things um our brain is designed to judge we are a judging machine in that sense and especially with that safe world view it will judge everything through that filter and we can change our relationship with judgment by the way because <clears throat> as i say we, we can't not judge but we can change our relationship with that judgment and not have our responses driven by it yeah but that takes effort the mm. point is this takes effort right yeah. so the general public then who we've just met have their own uh, belief systems, value systems, their own view of the world. They have their own expectations of the process. They have their own view of dogs and what they think the dog is. And, you know, I had dogs all my life and all this kind of, whatever it is. <clears throat> we can't in inhabit that space with them because otherwise we're just going to get into conflict with that. And I think we've got to be really mindful of how we approach working with the general public and their doggies to try and create a supportive, cooperative process. Uh, and that's why I've got my cake acronym. I talk about cake a lot. Mm -hmm. We all love cake, right? Uh, and um, so cake is compassion, awareness, knowledge, and empathy. And it's a really good thing for us professionals because it helps us navigate our own emotional stuff, helps us become available better to others, and helps them navigate their stuff. Mm -hmm. So if you like, I can just break that down a bit, if you like. Yeah. Yeah. So compassion is the first one, obviously. And um, compassion is about turning up, actually. Uh, we, our own brain wants to judge, right? So, so for example, I look at the intake form. They've used the shop collar. They've done this. They've done that, whatever. My judgy brain wants to judge. And that's fine. And I can allow my judgy brain to judge. But I can change my relationship with that. And the thing about compassion is, despite how I feel about this, I will turn up anyway. Yeah. It's compassion. Mm -hmm. So it's not about being permissive. It's not condoning. It's just saying, I can still hold space with you and I can turn up for you. That's compassion. <clears throat> uh, awareness is about truly allowing me to navigate my own biases and cognitive distortions to try and be as aware as I can be of that other person's lived experience with their dog. Because that's really important. My personal opinion is we've got to make that connection with the human first. Now, even if um, it's a relatively straightforward thing, like they've come to learn loose leash walking, right? mm -hmm. it's still good to kind of find out, okay, what's going on? How's it affecting you? You know, this, you know, whatever mm -hmm. it is, try connection. And then knowledge, we obviously bring knowledge, uh, but uh, it's about us being humble enough to seek knowledge first. 
to learn from them first, to learn from the dog first, because we bring cake to the dog, dog friendly cake, yeah. uh, as well. And also, by the way, we should bring cake for ourselves. Self-compassion, self-awareness, mm. self-knowledge. When you have compassion, awareness and knowledge, then you're more likely to be able to truly have empathy. And empathy really cuts through a lot of stuff. So the wonderful Brené Brown says empathy uh, drives connection. Uh, sorry, empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. I want us to think about that a little bit because what she means by that is to sympathize is okay, but it creates a power imbalance. I sympathize with you, but it hadn't happened to me. That's the problem. There's often a but with sympathy. Mm-hmm. With empathy, there is no but. There shouldn't be a but. If somebody says, I empathize, but then they're not really empathizing. Um, so this is helpful then for us, I think whether you're a dog trainer or a behaviorist and you're turning up to see that client, I'm going to bring cake. I'm going to hold space. I'm going to hear the experience. I'm going to learn from you. I'm going to learn from your dog. Uh, and I'm going to hear you. I'm going to, so rather than me think, Oh, I must spend the first half hour telling you how amazing I am I am, and how, how much knowledge I have. I say, we've all been there. We're just going to think I'm confident enough to think I, I can help you. You've already employed me. I don't have to sell myself. Mm. I'm going to hear your experience and I want you to feel heard. Great. Because then I can I can go through what we call the three A's. Uh, first A is awareness. Great. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've, I've started by trying to be aware of their needs, the human. Now I'm going to support their awareness of their dog. So let's say even a dog then who's pulling like a train. Right? Once I've learned from them in the dog, I'm, I can say to them, do you know what? I, I need to help them be aware that actually the loose leash walking is something we can work on. But... Based on my observations, the problem for this dog is they're already really bucket full being in the environment anyway, whatever it is, you know, so so I can say. So from a behavioral point of view as a behaviorist, uh, and and especially because I tend to uh, work with aggression and and reactivity and stuff, I want to support their awareness of their dog's reality as best we can see it. The second day is acknowledgement. And this is the thing, you see. Uh, my my responsibility in my mind is to support their awareness of their dog's lived experience. That's my that's what I do. <clears throat> the next day is to help them acknowledge it. And that's the tricky bit for many people because of their own biases, their own judgments, their own belief systems, value systems. Uh, you know, it's easier you know, they, uh, for them to think, well, maybe my dog isn't being dominant. Maybe my dog isn't being a, a bit of a knobhead, whatever, whatever is they're thinking. They have to acknowledge that. And again, that I see that as my responsibility to help them. It's not my responsibility whether they do or not. I think mm. this is really not my responsibility that they that they do everything. We cannot make people do or think things. We can try and shame them, but that never helps because they're either going to probably do it when we're around, but not when we're not. Yeah. So we can't take this responsibility. I see so many things in threads where people are like, oh, God, I've been working with this person and now they've gone to the shop collar down the road and they've taken it very deeply and personally. It's it's it. We have to allow ourselves to feel that because it hurts a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I call them ouchy moments. I always think, ouch, that was about. And we always think about the dog. But what that tells us is that person wasn't ready for this message then, or they, or they found their, their answer somewhere else. Mm-hmm. That's not on that. That's not on us. No. So yeah. Because we can't, them. we can though try our best to help them acknowledge, you know, the, the, what it is. And then the final A is where we want to get to, which is acceptance, where they truly accept what they, so they they accept that now. Mm. And the beautiful thing about acceptance is best outcomes come from acceptance, but also unlocks the advocacy part of the brain, Mm -hmm. which is hugely important for people who have dogs with challenging behaviours, because 
part of the reason that they struggle is because of their own perceived judgments of others, of course, because um, we call it social evaluative threat. And, uh, and so they're like, oh, everybody's looking at me and, you know, whatever it is. And, and that's a really very deep, visceral feeling, actually. So that's difficult. So this is important for us then, as I say, all these things, when, when whether we're training or, or doing behavior or whatever, however we work, we just have to be really clear about what it is we think we can do. Recognize that, um, you know, we, we try and support best outcomes, that we can be available to the emotional experience of others, but we're not responsible for them. Yeah. And we definitely shouldn't be taking on the burden of others. There's something called the writing reflex, which is a very powerful thing. And this is the darker side to empathy, actually, uh, because and we see this play out on social media in our community but, and more widely. It's not just not just our trainers. Uh, empathy is a powerful thing, right? So you shared your story with me and I empathize. That means I feel it like it was my own. It takes a lot, actually, to then educate yourself and change your relationship with that feeling. Think, right, I, I feel it, but I'm not responsible for it. It's, that's yours still. Often we feel compelled to, to do something. That's the point. We get compelled to put things right. Mm. And actually, world wars are caused through empathy and the writing reflex. It's like they're like me. So therefore, I must fight with them with that and we see that happen on um social media so somebody says oh, i've been ter treated terribly by this and everybody's like oh, my god i i hear you that's awful they must be really horrible i must dive in and 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 write things for you mm. so actually it takes a bit of emotional mm, effort to think i can be available to feel with you but i can i, I can make sure that I'm, I'm not there and this is important when we work with clients because we're like i've got to put this right yeah I'm going to have to kind of work and, uh, you know, all hours for no money, or uh, I can't possibly charge my normal session fee. I'll just charge you a fiver because I've got to keep seeing all these things that many people go to this, these dynamics that's triggering that process for them. So I like to identify challenges up front with clients. Um, we call it front loading. Uh, I also like the concept of contracting, although I would never use that term with my clients, but uh, I've got a client um, that I saw before Christmas, but there's a lot of challenging things going on. Uh, they came to me through local kind of um, government agency kind of thing. So I had to be right. <clears throat> I can take this on, but these are the challenges. And I had to make sure that I gave the client the opportunity to express their challenges and I had to express mine right, right up front. Because that way then you're setting your scene and you've got the boundaries in place before you start. Mm. For a bit um a bit more not quite so foundated especially with your own emotion uh, emotional self-esteem work-wise it's like oh yeah we'll be fine yeah i'm going to help you and then you get sucked into a cul-de-sac that you can't get out of because you right at the beginning we didn't identify those challenges as being challenges and it's much better to try and identify and take time and talk about these things and, and there's a principle called negotiated safety i love that uh, and this is about thinking about how we, you know, uh, think about our, our non-negotiables and, and 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 all these things come in together. Sorry, that was a bit of a rant. Anyway, there you go. So, I, look, Andrew, it was great. And um, I, I, I hear a lot of what you've said there. And I know that it's something that we care about here at PACT with our members. And, and in fact, just this month or next month, actually, our topic is empathy. 
during one of mm. our well-being sessions because we talk about having it, you know, it making you able to empathize with the client, you know, but then that point of how do I break off from that? You know, how do I not go home with it? How does it, how do I not sit with that feeling for a whole evening? So, yeah, I definitely this think it's a really important conversation. Uh, it is really important. And the answer is, is a, is, is not an easy one mm. because how much we are affected by things is very much dependent upon how foundated we are already, mm. how well regulated we are already and what our boundaries are like already. Um, so at some point we do have to have, we, we call them a period of reappraisal. We have to have a period where we step back and think, right, who am I? Mm. That's important. Um, why do I feel some of these things sometimes? Why do I maybe have a bit of a, a saving uh, complex sometimes? Or you know, what is it about my own story, especially those of us, including myself, who who've had trauma and insecure attachment issues and, and what that does for us and and how that makes us actually... With empathy, it's a fine line between truly connecting and making it about ourselves, yeah. taking it on ourselves. That's really problematic. And, and we have to make sure that we have those things in place. And, um, uh, and because we don't talk about this enough, and because many people, especially who work in a positive way, um, are extremely empathetic, uh, and uh, it leads us open to, um, to problems, actually. Mm. And that boom and bust cycle and compassion fatigue is a big one. Mm. I talk about compassion fatigue a lot because that's a sign to me that that person has struggled with self-compassion first. If we, you know, and, uh, and it's, and it's, uh, I gave two webinars recently for, for an organization. One was on, uh, you know, thinking about dog center care model. And the other was on self-care. Loads of people came to the dog center care model one live. Loads of people had reasons why they couldn't come to the self-care one. And I was thinking, God, isn't that interesting? Because mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't have something like this. If, if you really thought about self-compassion, you think, oh, that's my priority then. Yeah. But we don't. We just don't. And, uh, and I think it's crazy that, um, you know, uh, that we spend more on hot dog sausages a month than we do on self-care stuff. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. You know, I, I, I have a, I have a therapist that I see. I see her regularly. It's tax deductible. I couldn't do my job without it. It's a great space just to offload. You know, we should be looking at this and making it the norm, really. Well, it's good to know it's tax deductible. Why have we not been putting yeah. our counselling on that? <laughs> we we um we go to a counsellor, and it's actually it's a it's a really really wonderful thing, a really um underrated great thing difficult sometimes joyous sometimes as well there's some there's some really wonderful breakthrough moments um and there's never been a time when i've when i've walked out of a session and thought well that, that wasn't worth it you know there's always been something to think about something to build off of some some question to ask myself you know you talk about that who are you know i remember the first time i ever did any kind of counseling i was so sure of myself like I was so sure I had all of those questions answered I was very I felt like I was quite confident and I knew who I was and and but you start like dig, 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 like chipping away a little bit here and there and and actually you you know you you uncover maybe a lot of things I mean it's not the same experience for everyone obviously but um I, I found myself uncovering insecurities past traumas you know all of these sorts of things and I I, I 
I really loved that. I know it was a wonderful rant and one that's going to be very, very useful, especially to um, anyone that's that's getting into dog training because it is that that I mean we talk about the human end of the lead, but that's almost extrapolating it back even more, isn't it? It's the human that's seeing the human that's on the other end of the lead, that's on the end mm-hmm. of the dog. You know, it's going all the way back around, and and it's often not talked about, and it's quite it's quite um, topical to be thinking of the human end of the lead, but not the dog trainer. And that's what I like about you, Andy. You always, you always um, have these, these insights because you're a background in psychology that, you know, that are, that are a wealth of information for, for dog trainers, behaviorists, any professionals, any humans. Yeah. Um, I think that's really, really valuable. Maybe with um, your course that you were just running, that you should it should be a two part, and you have to attend the human yeah. part before you can attend. Like get get them in doing the bit that they apparently think they don't need first, or or, or haven't. It's not that they think they don't need it. I guess it's well, a lot of people are, are running on not enough time, aren't they? They're, they're they're giving out a lot of their time to other things, so making time for the important things. Yeah. But most things are down to uh, one of the things that I always talk about is, is this kind of notion that perception is everything. How we perceive situations, how we perceive behavior, how we perceive ourselves drives our responses. So most things are actually, uh, it's very rarely you have deliberate, I don't know, cruelty when it comes to dogs or or whatever else. It's just, it's just a lack of awareness. Mm. So for many professionals then, if they're not aware that maybe it's some of their own sensitivities and their own, um, you know, defense mechanisms that create some of those barriers, actually, they, they won't think that there's any, they, they won't seek something to think about that. Yeah. Many of the, many of our colleagues, um, I think part of the, it's that writing reflex, but, but this notion of somehow, They've got to get people to stop using those tools. They've got to get people to see things in a positive way. They've got to, they, they feel very passionate about that. Uh, but that in itself is the problem that mindset is because we can't make people. This is the point. And if, if somebody doesn't and they go and see that shop drop down the road, that is their journey and that's what they're on. And we weren't, we weren't able to, to provide that kind of influence or provide that awareness. But we shouldn't look at the 10 people behind us who we have. And this is the problem, I think. Um, I see a lot of colleagues go through this boom and bust because they have that negative review. They have that negative comment on a a post. Doesn't matter if 100 people said that's a great article, Mm. but one person does not. And if we are like that, then we we do have to look at why our our self-esteem isn't healthy enough to ride that a little bit. And it is about healthy self-esteem. You know, I, I see all sorts of stuff gets said about me some of it's about my work some of it's quite personal and and it and it's not that it doesn't hurt it hurts uh that's why i say to that's why i use my ouch thing i think ouch, that was ouch. but um but i but i i work hard at my emotional health and my my healthy self-esteem so that i can uh i can take those ups and downs because they do come and uh uh and it's, it's a tricky thing but uh it is that initial mindset about what it is that we think we're looking to do and so one of the things i've shared um i think i shared it in something that i shared with you a little while ago steve but uh in a local dog group um people say anybody know behavior so people put stuff in mm-hmm. and this one ex-client of mine said definitely not hail capital letters uh made my dog worse um you need to go and see this guy yeah. the local 
whatever. Yeah. And uh, so there's a very defensive part of our brain. Uh, I, th- I think you know this, Steve, uh, but I, I like to label that name, that part of my brain. Mine's called Bob. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bob is is right there. He's like, oh, you see, you know, you're not good enough for, or you give them what for, and you know, whatever else. Bob's the one who in the in the car wants to give the fruity language, you know. Yeah. Uh, and the problem with social media, of course, it's lots of people's bobs all having to go at each other. That's the problem. Uh, but but we must recognise that Bob, our own Bob, who who likes to work with destructive language often, uh, um, is we 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 need to be loving to Bob because Bob's just a byproduct of our trauma, our secure insecure attack, all these kind of things. And it's the first part of the brain we need to get the blood. It's that vital flight, it's that defensive mm-hmm. thing. <clears throat> we, we, but we can change our relationship. This is I love this turn of phrase. How we change our relationship. My own trauma uh, as a child. I can't go back in time, but I have learned to change my relationship with my trauma. Mm. Change my relationship, change my relationship with Bob. Uh, and um, so Bob wants to dive in, and he wants to make everything about me. And this is one of the things I talk about in my workshop. Really, is we we can over time feel what we feel, change our relationship with those, but not be driven by that response. That's the point. We can we can learn to not let it drive our response. And we can shift that to instead of what does it say about me, what does it say to me? It's a really powerful way of flipping narratives and moving from destructive language to descriptive. So there, when I first saw that, then Bob's like bloody. You know, I, one of the things I wish, in a way, uh, it wouldn't be very professional. I know that we could leave reviews for our clients, like you can with an Uber driver. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so anyway, but I thought right, okay, it's going to leave it there. I'm not even going to reply because what it said to me was what I knew anyway, was that she didn't value my service. Mm. It's got nothing about me as a person because she doesn't even know me, Mm. but she didn't value what I had to offer. That's up to her. Uh, And um, when the thing about made my dog worse, it reminded me that one of the problems I had with her regarding that awareness, acknowledgement, acceptance was the acknowledgement that she had responsibility for her own dog. Mm. Uh, And then the final bit by saying you need to go and see this guy who is the local aversive ex-police dog trainer bloke that she found her answer yeah what was anything there got to do about me and my ability to do my job nothing yeah. it's her perception of it yeah. and she's entitled to it. and of course if, if every other client is leaving you a poor review if, if whatever then you do have to reevaluate stuff yeah, but <laughs> i think the vast majority of us especially uh packed members of course because they're they're heavily assessed and accredited and supported. They do a great job. They've already been told from the from those up above, you're good enough. And we're always good enough. So anyway, this is important. So even this thing then, remember, Bob wants to make stuff about you. Uh, we have to th- we have to think, so what does it say to me, actually? So even if somebody uh, doesn't say something very nice about me or doesn't say something very nice about my work, and especially the kind of things that I try and educate about because it's a little bit, you know, out just slightly off the received wisdom stuff. It just tells me that they didn't get it or that they don't like me, which is up to them, and uh, or that they they have a view of me, which is their view to have. I think there's sometimes we have to, there's a fine line between that and defamation, of course, and, and thinking about mm, professional reputation. But I've only had one incident of that in the last 10 years, and solicitors are very good at dealing with that. But the vast majority of the time, yeah, we just have to kind of think about what it is we're feeding into. And, and Bob needs taming. Mm-hmm. Not feeding. Yeah, it's it's the chimp paradox. If anybody's read the book, the chimp paradox, I great book actually. by the way. 
I'm talking about the chimp brain. That's Bob, really. Yeah. One little point I just want to mention here. Um, um, often, when we try and work in an empathetic way, when we try and work in a compassionate way, there are those who want to kind of see that as being weak. Yeah. Uh, being a bit fluffy, being a bit whatever. But this is my genuine thought here. To be able to turn up anyway, to have compassion, even even when you know my husband works as a he's a nurse at a hospice. They had a they had a, a prisoner come in from the local prison, really done a lot of not very nice stuff, and ended up having their end of life at the hospice. And they had armed guards there and everything. You know, it was just whatever. Kieran's compassion helped him turn up anyway. And I'm just going to share this with you actually very quickly because this guy really struggled with any form of care. But the day before he passed away, he turned to Kieran, who, who was his primary person, and said, you know what, you're the first person that showed me any care. It was deeply moving for Kieran. Wow. And even one of the prison guards who was being a bit, because there was always this friction, because the prison guards were like, you can't do that, it's still a prisoner. And Kieran's like, no, I'm going to care for him because there's a human being in the hospital. One of those prison guards ended up has ended up being a volunteer at the hospice because they were so moved wow. by the compassion wow. regardless of what this person had done because the person had done not really so that's the power of compassion right? mm. so actually i would argue then if we can turn up anyway if we can try and be empathetic whilst also protecting ourselves in that process you know that because we have to be, we have to get that balance right is actually the highest form of humanity because it's easy to be judgmental it's easy to uh, respond to bob's voice that's the easy bit it's easy to take sides. It's easy to say, you know, I won't do this for you because you've done that. That's the easy bit. To move above that and to work like we do is actually the pinnacle of human existence. It's the hardest thing. It's the, it's the, it's where we are at in our human development, actually. So, so never let anybody tell you it's somehow lesser than because no. actually it's way more than. There's sure. a strength to that, isn't there? There's. A, I think. Yes. Didn't I say that to you? Was it yesterday or the day before? And it was more to do, I was discussing fear and sort of showing strength when you're fearful is even more strong than if you were confident and you showed strength, you know. So I think that was kind of, but but it maybe made me think of that when you were just saying that. I've got. I, That's important because what you what you said there is, um, you know, uh, being strong is often weak. Actually. Being vulnerable, which is different to feeling vulnerable, by the way. Mm -hmm. Feeling vulnerable is about giving away power and control. Being vulnerable is recognizing that you're struggling, recognizing your dark and your shade as well as your light, recognizing the things you've done before, recognizing your frailties. That's actually a strength, big strength, mm. actually. Have, have you ever heard um, of an artist called Ren, a musical artist called Ren? He's got a song called High Ren. And it's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's an old kind of premise of the song where it's sort of like a, a call and response song. So he's like speaking to his subconscious. He's speaking to his Bob throughout the song mm. it's quite a long song but it's it's absolutely beautiful um and it's this young young artist um, i think he's based in brighton and he plays this like classical guitar and each sort of almost verse is flipping around where he's it's him talking about his musical career and then it's his bob who he calls ren um talking back about how rubbish he is and he's never gonna make it and you know you're stealing all your ideas from everyone and it goes backwards and forwards and it builds up to this amazing crescendo. Honestly, you should check it out. It's uh, it's really good. I'll send you a link. One of the best songs from last year. Oh, it's it's actually incredible. And the video, there's a video for it as well. It's really good. 
And um, something else, another musical tangent. Um, there was a band that I used to love called Fugazi. And they were based, I used to be a bit of a punk when I was younger. And they were based in uh, Washington, D.C. And they were one of the first bands that, one thing that really spoke to me is um, around the sort of punk scene, the DOI punk scene, um, people would quite often be quite violent in the audience. There was a, it's, you know, it used to be a thing at punk shows that people would spit on each other. In a, in a sort of affectionate way, I guess. Um, but there'd be, there'd be like, you know, moshing and fighting and people pushing each other over and it'd be quite violent. And what this band um, identified was that uh, all of this was excluding a lot of people that didn't like that kind of, you know, that still liked the music, that wanted to go to the shows and, and like the music, but, but didn't, um, but wouldn't get involved because of all of this kind of violent sort of stuff that came along with that sort of music. So they started to, stop the shows if things got too uh, rowdy invite people to come to so girls to come to the front of the of the stage um they would throw petals into the audience so the music was still like pretty hardcore sort of aggressive um uh they were vegan uh they they, they just totally they they didn't drink alcohol they didn't do drugs they, they totally flipped the whole thing on its head and came up with this um this concept of um being it's called straight edge or they were one of the bands that came up with this concept. And um, I remember hearing an interview, this is a tangent, um, with uh, one of the guys, Ian Mackay, his name was, and he was saying that he he always found that it was that the hardest thing to do was the right thing. The hardest possible thing you can do as a human is to do the right thing. And and that kind of speaks to me about what you were saying and what you were saying actually about the, you know, um, accepting sort of vulnerability you know and and turning up and and not being and not being weak actually being really really strong um and yeah i've always loved that band for that but you should um you should definitely check that other song out that high ren song well i've written that down and please send me the link because that sounds amazing i think this is the essence isn't it about you know this is how we grow uh there's there's two there's two chains that chain us to the past, I think I feel, and uh, when we when we start moving forward, you know, things about Bob. If we if we find we think, yeah, do you know what? Why am I not um, putting the article out? What is holding me back? What what is it that Bob is telling me? Uh, you know, it's always that question: Why? Why is that? What What am I fearing here? And this is why having good support networks are great. And and having that kind of one thing we miss in our community is good supervision, I think, you know, to have these kind of concepts. But so so we, we have to remember that it's that changing our relationship. It's not about not feeling stuff. It's about connection, connection to others, but connection to self, connecting ourselves to these things. Saying, okay, what is it there that's telling me that? What are those experiences? These are really important for us. And the two things that really chain us is guilt and shame. Mm. These two are these are two big things. And, and actually understanding guilt is important for us as professionals because especially when we know the general public, many of them, all of them, of course, they are more likely to be indoctrinated into the dominance model, the guy on telly, that there must be a consequence, that they sh this bad behaviour with them, whatever it is. So they've often done a lot of that stuff before they come to us. And, they, and then when we do support their awareness, they're going to feel guilt. Mm. And again, it's about changing our relationship again. For me, with guilt, guilt can go one of two ways. If we stay connected to that feeling of guilt, it keeps us chained to the past. That thing we did 20 years ago that we still feel guilty about. 
uh, and it makes us feel horrible inside and and either we end up getting sucked into that feeling then and we we ruminate over it and we and it, we just can't go to sleep or we try and disassociate with it we try and put a barrier up to it and we just try and move on either way not healthy if we see guilt as being a, the reason it feels so bad is because we've deeply learned something but that we have a choice about what we do with that moving forwards tomorrow and the next day it breaks the chain to the past it's like well, i can't go back to that time 20 years ago but i can think about what i need to think about as me moving forward. same with our clients it's like okay when my clients say oh i feel guilty i hear some other professionals trying to say oh no don't feel guilty i actually say the opposite i say yeah feel that feel that because it's uncomfortable, because it tells you something, you've learned something very deeply, very viscerally. And the beautiful thing is we get a choice tomorrow about what we do next. Mm. And so that's a really powerful thing. It's the same with shame. Shame is about judgment. And again, uh, you know, we can we can have a sense of shame ourselves and we can also feel shame because it's it's delivered by others. So if you hear any bang, it's my dog's wagging tail. <laughs> um uh and one of the big antidotes to shame is being vulnerable. So on various platforms, when it's when it's relevant, I talk about my abuse. I talk about my drug addiction. I talk about my breakdown. I do that because I won't feel shame. I, I you know I will not allow shame to attach me to that because it's part of my story and I will share it. We have what we call the vulnerability hierarchy. They like this hierarchy. Um, uh, it's always good to have a hierarchy around and a bucket. <laughs> always point to one or the other. Uh, so the bottom bit here is we're most we have to be most vulnerable with ourselves. Actually, that can be the hardest thing. It's like okay, I can revisit that and I can feel that and it's uncomfortable. But what can I take from it? Um, do I need support with that process? Because that's where professional support is important. Sometimes we need that. Oh my God, my therapist after my breakdown saved my life for sure and allowed me to reevaluate a lot of this stuff in a safe way, which is what we need. But um, and then the next bit is uh that that person that we're most vulnerable with. And in that case, it's my husband, and, and he's also the one that knows me the most. And and then we build up until this bit at the top where you know it's not like I stand on a street corner and say, Hi, morning. I used to take drugs. How are you? <laughs> that's too, that's too much, right? And this is the thing about boundaries. It's not just about what we let in, it's what we let out. It's saying, okay, what's my filter here? But um, but so being vulnerable is a really good attitude of shame. And uh when we change our relationships with our own judgment of others. It changes our relationship with the impact of other people's judgments of our, on us. Yeah. So I've had situations in them. Um, I think what, what happens is a little bit, I've, I've learned this myself over time. Uh, when you try and set up supportive spaces that are for others. So most of the stuff I do isn't the Andy group. It's like, let's all join together. And you try and work in a compassionate way and try and be supportive. There are some, it's only a small number, who misinterpret that as somehow you will be told what to do and you would be bullied and everything else you see and, and that's that's not I won't be and um and I won't be shamed into doing something because somebody else says you must do this I have to think do I want to do that or not and some people sadly just by even saying no to them triggers a response in them which is theirs to have but that can come back on to you then mm -hmm. so uh that's this thing about understanding self really for me the most important thing brings nicely back up to the dolly parton quote find out who you are and do it on purpose 
being Andy has to be enough. I, I, when you think about it, it has to be, doesn't it? It, yeah. it? it can't not be anything else. If I try and be more than or less than, then I'm not being Andy. And if I'm trying to be more than or less than, I'm invariably buckling under the pressure of somebody else's expectational need. So Andy is always enough. Corin is always enough. Steve is always enough. But when we truly understand that, it's so freeing. And when we can turn up as ourselves in our most authentic way that we can, then that's all we can do. And, and what's also recognizing it doesn't matter what I do or don't do, there are some people where Andy won't be enough yeah. for them and they won't like it and whatever. And that's but that, that's up to them. So shame and guilt, those are the things that we need to reframe and change that experience with. And um, and it's tricky to navigate sometimes, especially when you you put yourself out there publicly. You know, you find I'm sure as um, you know, you have a very high profile place yourselves, especially with trying to navigate an organization like Pact, where you have members. I, I was the chair into dogs, and it's tricky because you have a lot of expectations, a lot of judgments. So we have to be really sure about what we do. One last point on this. Uh, I practice what I preach with emotional health. I have to. My physical health, however, I'm a bit of a bugger with. Uh, <laughs> but because uh, I've got a chronic health condition, if, and I, if it didn't work because I wasn't feeling great, I'd ne- never get out of bed. But emotional health, I have to work at it, and I practice what I preach, and I do have self-compassion first emotionally, and I think, right, don't have the bandwidth for this. And uh, whilst it's important to try and turn up to the emotional experience of another, it's also okay not to. Mm-hmm. it's also okay to say I, I feel that but actually i can't i can't deal with this or i have learned from this process everybody's teaching you something that this isn't a safe space for me i've had that with the odd client mm-hmm. i've definitely had it within our profession and i think we don't have to make a big drama alarm about it we can just back off yeah other people don't like that sometimes and that's up to them and then people will want to say all sorts of things about us and that's up to them and i feel to myself if people want to just hear stuff without evidence, they're not the people I want in my circle anyway. But so we have to have some self-care. And again, another antidote to that is over the years, I've built up some really good, healthy working relationship with colleagues that I feel safe with. This thing about negotiated safety, the same applies for us working because there are some working relationships I have where I don't feel entirely safe, but I do see the value in them. So that's where I have to be really careful about my boundaries. Um, I try and avoid barriers if I can, because the trouble with barriers are great in as far as they do protect you, but they stop any connection now. So sometimes we negotiate our boundaries. Sometimes we negotiate safety, if you like, because mm-hmm. we can, because we're aware of it. There are some spaces for me personally, I think I don't feel safe here. And that isn't necessarily because they're because of them. It's just my own story, my own trauma, my own bob. There is something there I'm, I'm not sure about. And then, you know, sometimes it's because I feel that they are very unsafe for me personally. But often it's just because I just got to self-protect. And I would encourage everybody to think about that. Yeah. Uh, and it's tricky when you first start out. It's tricky when you're starting off. It's tricky when you feel, this is what happens a lot, sadly, with power imbalances, where you think, I don't feel safe here, but I need this person to somehow validate me. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, it's tricky then, isn't it? We've all been there as well. My God, there's been a couple of people that, early on for me that I look back and I think, wow, I was really, I was really mm, very, in a very difficult situation there because I felt I somehow had to kowtow and be bullied and be whatever because I felt I had to get on. We've all been there. 
But having these discussions is important because we, what I do find is when we do talk about these things, talking about being vulnerable, when you open up a safe space and you start by being vulnerable, the room becomes more like that and people share because they're like, well, that resonated with me and actually that's okay. And in an industry community where we have a lot of idols who don't necessarily act particularly vulnerably because they show the best stuff and it's all very slick and it's all very good. We, we just need people to be a bit more, yeah, that's tough for me. And actually, you know, um, uh, like for me, you know, people, people have, have think that I'm quite a confident speaker and I'm not. And I talk about this quite a bit as well. My, my poor husband before a conference, you know, um, the London Vet Show last year was a big one for me mm. uh, because um, it, was a, it was right in the middle of it. It was a big thing. Kieran, you know, uh, how he didn't kind of pack his bags, I don't know, because it was hard for him. But we should talk about this stuff. Yeah. It's it, it, Turning up is hard. Mm-hmm. No matter what level you are, what perceived level of success you have. He didn't he didn't pack his bags because you pay him in uh, Dolly Parton LPs. <laughs> well, exactly. That's very true. I, I've, that's very... I feel the same about public speaking. Um, our first conference, I just did a an intro and oh my God, how much did I rehearse for my intro? And I still forgot to do my slides on the day and I decided there and then, and now for some people, some people go, see, it wasn't as scary as you thought, was it? Now you can go on. Actually, for me, it was as scary as I thought. And I'm not, I didn't jump at the chance to do it again next year, but I did find what I could do and what I was comfortable doing. And that was all right for me. But yeah, yeah. Everyone was like, you'll do it and then you'll feel good. I'm like, I don't feel good, actually. I feel awful. (laughs) That's important, isn't it? I think this is what we have to have a look at that self-reflection with these things and this is why my, my late father's um, saying just turn up has always stayed with me mm. because because what he actually meant was turn up as you and see what happens. Mm. But turning up can be hard sometimes. And um, uh, and uh, often it does kind of work out all right. But that doesn't negate from the fact that we were a mess in the process. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and there's a little friction between enough and more that I, that I like to talk about because we have to understand that we are enough for sure. And then we have to think about what more is in regards to, because more is about growth. But that has to be authentic for us, and we have to do it on our terms. Um, we do have to push ourselves a little bit, but it can be a little bit. It doesn't have to be a big bit. Yeah. The problem is I think a lot of people are are convinced within the community that they're constantly looking at more. But then the problem then is it's never enough. Yeah. yeah. And that's the problem, I think. We have to just celebrate enough fast. And think about more over the years. You know, I've spoken at some big conferences now, and I quite enjoy it more than I used. To. I still, I, it, when I get there, I'm fine. That's my thing. When I'm there, I'm fine. Yeah. And actually, I prefer in person talking now. Yeah. Um, when I first did the Victoria Stewart conference, which was my first big one, go poor old Victoria. Oh my God. So, so you kind of pre-record there, and then it goes out live and everything else. Um, uh, I, I, I kept going back saying, "Can I do it again? Can I do it again? Can I do it?" And guess what? We use the original one anyway. <laughs> I must have done it times before I thought actually the first one was all right. Yeah. yeah. It's hard when you're talking in front of a, a um, just your computer monitor. Yeah. When you've got a room of people, uh, you do feel the love, I think. Yeah. It's, it's, I do think that. It's that, yeah. that sort of group willing, willing you on type. You can, you can almost feel it, that energy back from, from being in front. And again, it, it come, comes back to this whole problem of social media not being in front 
or you know or road rage uh, there's a just just taking things on a slight well it's not a tangent actually because it all feeds back into other but i want to talk about um or have a little conversation at least about um the way that uh dog training and behavior is is heading um we talked to stephanie rousseau the other day who um has written the wonderful um how to raise a puppy book with turid rigas um we had Sindor um, at our conference, so we've had her on the podcast as well. Um, loving, absolutely loving speaking to people. And again, maybe we put it under this dog-centric kind of banner. Um, what, what I am interested in is people that have been working, you know, good, brilliant dog trainers, behaviorists that are that have kind of been may, maybe working a little bit before this approach is gaining a lot of uh momentum um how how should how should we be feeling oh, this is a big question as i'm as it's coming out of my mouth i'm understanding how big this question is but how how should people be feeling so when when they hear like that maybe the way that they're approaching things there's a better way of doing it or there's another way of looking at it um uh i think i fear that people might feel like oh my God, my whole foundation has been shaken. And this speaks a little bit to what we spoke about before about you get to a certain age maybe and, and everything starts to shut shut down a little bit. Um, but these people, are, you know, these people have good intentions and are, you know, and are definitely um, working well and getting results and, and actually probably fit into that bracket anyway but because again social media and and the momentum of movements and i don't like the word movement but you get what i mean what what would you say to people that are kind of like you know find themselves on that side of things that's the majority of people by the way yeah i think <laughs> so i think I, so yeah I, I wrote an article about six years ago called phantom of the operant yeah great article. Uh, and uh, then i said at my dog center care group to examine them more. And then, of course, we had the Beyond the Operant conversations with myself and Kim Brophy and Kathy Murphy. The, the, the important word there is beyond, beyond the operant. And I think that this, this kind of shift is a relatively simple one, but a very profound one. And people do need support to understand it. And uh, uh, this is why I love um, talking at conferences and stuff. And even at the London Vestry, I'd say it was, um, you know, we had vet behaviorists there and that. And they were like, oh, that's a slightly different way of looking at behavior because. What's happened with behavior is more traditionally, we've looked at the quite an arbitrary way of getting it or changing it without thinking about it from the individual point of view and about what behavior actually represents. Behavior is an expression of need, behavior is an expression of self. And for me, it's a shift we're seeing from task orientated, transactional, which is the norm, and all the arguments that go on there. I call it the opera merry-go-round because everybody's arguing about how best to do task. Mm to a care-orientated relational one. And it's a very simple difference. It's about learning from the other first. Mm. So I, I gave a talk in my group um, discussing safety and relief, and I had a video of Molly as a 16-week-old puppy telling me how she needed to navigate that environment. Um, and so this is the shift. Now, I often hear, I love talking at so I talked at the Gundog conference last year, which is very task oriented, you know, in person. Um, and I love that because what I don't like to see is the absolutism that goes on. Um, because my, my late mother had a saying, which is there's no absolutes, but kindness. Mm. And actually, for me, we can change that to no absolutes, but welfare. So people ask me all the time, 
oh, so, you know, is dog training bad then? And, and I think, well, no, dog training is neutral. Let's just make that really clear. It's just, it's an important thing. It's teaching. It's what we've done with it traditionally that's been the, which, is, which we're now discussing and thinking about things. So I have my learn, support, teach mantra, which is learn from the dog first. Even the puppy has stuff to tell you if you know what you're looking at. Support what you've learned, right? Teach things that you feel are likely to be intrinsically valuable for that puppy, that dog, that whatever. And then after that, you can train whatever you like and do whatever you want. Mm. That is the shift for me. And it is about a mindset shift. So I see my little role in this story as providing mindset shifts. So the talks I give at conferences and that, they're deliberately designed to be quite powerful, really, because I I don't want people to think differently after seeing me present. I want people to feel differently and feel and think, yeah, actually, that that makes that's invited me to feel a bit differently here. And then we need to support people with the practical outlook of what that looks like. So, um, uh, you know, uh, I share a lot of case studies. That's how I work with aggression predominantly. And, and actually, with these dogs, you, it, they have a survival story to learn first. Um, and we need to listen to them and find out what that is. So we also need to provide practical education about what this looks like then. So that that it was only a two-minute little clip with Molly, little 16-week-old Molly, and I was giving a commentary on top. There's tons of stuff in two minutes from a 16-week-old puppy. Mm. So it's about being humble. I think this is the key. So this shift then... We don't have to think training's bad. We don't have to think, oh, you know, um, you know, we have to get rid of stuff. It's not that at all. It's about building our toolkit. Our operant toolkit should be part of a bigger toolkit, not the toolkit, in my humble opinion. Uh, and it is difficult because it's it's easier, actually, because we used to think, oh, we don't know how animals think and feel, so we'll ignore that bit and see if we get more or less behavior. That's the operant stuff. But I don't know how you two think and feel. This is the point. When we look at things through the emotional experience lens, as I class it, we all have one and they're all unique to us as individuals. So how do we then rather than think for me, it's just not enough to see behavior change yeah. if that animal isn't feeling safe or get relief. But also even just from a learning point of view, um, we see the same in the human educational system because we have a big structured learning bias as humans. So we put kids through school, dogs through dog training classes. Great. Problem is, if we're not careful, that becomes more about attainment than achievement. Mm-hmm. So little Johnny's in school today. That's an achievement for him because he's tired, he's traumatized, he hasn't had breakfast, whatever it is. He then can't learn very well based upon the, what's been done there because it's been done that way. So that's more like to make him feel frustrated or angry or whatever. So that's going to affect his behavior. Now he's been classed as difficult, disruptive. He's now disenfranchised from learning. Same as what we see with dog classes. You know, and I think this is the, so learn, support, teach. If we learn first, support what we learn, teach what's intrinsically valuable, then the dog's more likely to think, Joe, oh, I can cope with this stuff. I, I work as a consultant for a couple of large assistance dogs, uh, charities that have their own breeding programs. And we are looking at completely changing what we do in that first 12 months. And actually, rather than put the emphasis on thinking this dog has to become an assistance dog. We're putting the emphasis on we need to support this dog based on their terms of yeah. related yeah. safety so they can be as well regulated as possible by the time they meet the trainers because now they're like, oh, I have agency over my 
emotional and social safety needs. And, uh, you know, I can process the world in my own way. That means that dog's way better now to learn the task. So somebody said to me, and I can't remember who you are. I'm terribly sorry. You said to me at the conference. And um, but she said, from what I hear from you, then care first, task will follow. That's what we need on a T-shirt. I really I really like that. And thanks for clarifying that, because I think there are I think there is um, a world out there who are well-meaning, wonderful people. And like you say, most people, I think that um, that will benefit from hearing that and it, re- it instantly reminded me I was, I was googling it as you were talking there of that quote um because i think where history will leave what we've done in terms of operant conditioning where history will will see that later on down the line will be an interesting thing you know in a hundred years you know what will we be thinking about the way that we were um interacting and changing behaviors and things along those lines i should imagine we wouldn't look that favorably at it i don't know it depends but um, there was that great quote in Jurassic Park from Jeff Goldblum, who says uh, you're so preoccupied with whether or not they could do it. They never stop to think about whether they should do it. I think that's yes. a, that's a really um, that kind of sums it up a little bit, doesn't it? I've, um... It doesn't. Can I just add something on to that? Because one of the I, I spoke at a conference last year where the, when the kind of um, title of the conference was empathy. <clears throat> and the question I asked at the beginning of my talk was, is dog training? specifically especially positive training an empathetic way of working and actually if we're turning up to the dog and saying yeah I, I hear you and i've learned a bit about you but now you're going to do the things i can make you do because i'm going to use a primary enforcer to get it that is not an empathetic way of working and actually it isn't even about not thinking about operant techniques or methods do i use reinforcement yes of course i do mm-hmm. but i want to try and make sure i'm reinforcing and supporting behaviors that i've already learned are intrinsically valuable to this dog regarding their their safety and relief needs that's the shift i think mm. the, the, the problem for the general public is they've been convinced in the last 30 40 years that the most important thing is a well-trained obedient dog regardless of how you get that compliance positive or not where's the communication now where's that young so mother nature doesn't care about structured learning she cares about experiential learning she cares about how you This is why there's a big difference. We talk about this a lot in human psychology. There's a difference between what you are taught and what you learn. Really think about that because it's deep and it's profound. You will not remember much of what you were taught at school, but you will still remember what you learned intrinsically Mm. about your connection to peers, feeling safe, authority. How many of these dogs, that first 12 months, we've got to try and support that dog to learn what they need to so they feel confident with the world around them. Most, I'm not saying this, a lot of what we train has no internal value to the dog. No. Uh, and then the general public then are thinking, no, I'm asking my dog to do something. They're not, therefore, and they must be disobedient. And it's a training problem, whereas, in fact, it's a communication issue. So the general public now have to teach sit, but they don't know what pain looks like. They don't know what stress looks like. They don't know about development periods. They don't know about, you know, all these kind of things. So I think as a community then, and this is the big thing for me that is going to put distance between us and the old ways. The old ways at the moment, if we just keep fighting it on operant merry-go-round stuff, we're just trying to say how to do task nicer. This is this is moving to reinforcement was about moving forwards. This is about truly moving on. Let's leave them. They can they they want to just because aversive training is the ultimate manifestation of task at all costs. Mm. That's exactly what it is. I feel you, but you'll do it anyway. Yeah, we want to make 
we do no longer inhibit that space through positive means because you can have the same dialogue i hear you but you'll do it anyway even through positive means you see this and that's understanding the coercive potential of reinforcement which is like you said earlier steve is challenging for us on our side of the fence when i give my talks and things that say at conferences or whatever I, wherever i'm talking and when i touch on some of this stuff it's like oh that was a bit ouch because we feel or reinforcement is the ultimate manifestation of doing things nicely. But there's a saying which is uh, the path to coercion is often laid with good intention. That's yeah. a good thing to think. Yeah, it's the it's the opposite side of the of the coin, isn't it? When you think about you know positive reinforcement, positive punishment. You know, um, I, I even even for us, Steve, I think I was just going to say rules are yeah, rules and boundaries are important and uh you know teaching kind of etiquette and, and life skills whether it's for the child or the dog are important but boundaries shouldn't be barriers to unmet need mm. and i would ask ourselves when we have an education system for humans that is very much based around conformality and and kind of certain behavioral responses that are acceptable and not acceptable how is that working for us as a society with record numbers of young people self-harming record numbers of people with emotional and mental health problems because just because we behave in a certain way doesn't mean anything different so i i share again at the conference about my own trauma as a child sexualized trauma uh with a non-family member uh that affected my behavior because the thing about trauma is nothing changed around me other than my perception of it so my behavior changed my school took a punitive approach so i had more and more punishment until eventually i had the cane mm. but people of a, under a certain age yes we did used to hit kids with sticks uh, so I got the cane. So guess what? It worked. Punishment works. My behavior changes. The consequence of that was I didn't do that behavior. My parents took a different approach, which was recognizing that whilst I had everything I wanted as a kid because I was spoiled, what I didn't have enough was them because they were working so much and everything else. So they said, look, we understand something's going on here. Um, we will spend more time as a family together. Contingent. We love contingencies in dog training. Contingent on you behaving better for us. So guess what? I wanted that from them. So I did behave differently. So the consequence of that worked. And that's where we normally see consequences. But what was the real consequence? The real consequence for me was my drug addiction and breakdown some 20, 15 years later. Because for me then, I did behave differently, for sure. But I didn't feel any safer. And in fact, I went through my 20s feeling that I had to behave in a certain way to get acceptance and to be liked and to be loved and to not get into trouble. So when you think about this, it's deep and it's profound. Just the consequence alone, we've got to change our relationship, even with the notion of consequence. You know, the consequence in the moment, yes, the dog is doing a different behavior. Right. But does that dog feel any safer as a result? Are their needs being listened to? Are they able to feel their ability to communicate. For me, behavior for dogs is a bit like painting a picture. And I I never want a dog to not behave how they feel they need to. I work with quite dangerous dogs, so I have to mitigate for that. But actually, by doing that approach, they're safer to be around because they can communicate. What we tend to do with training, if we're not careful, is keep grabbing the brush and saying, we know how to paint it better for you. And this notion, so Molly, you know, this notion that somehow if you don't do all those training, you end up with a feral dog. That's not entirely true, of course, because I, because actually, what did I want Molly and my clients that I work with? I don't do classes, but I do do puppy support and adolescence. 
and we see this play out every time. What is it I actually remember? What difference between what you're taught and what you learn? What do I want that young dog to learn? I want them to learn that they're safe. I want them to learn their caregiver is their return to safety. And the biggest thing I want them to learn very early on is that they have a big voice. Because that is the most important. So my education for my puppy clients is not about how to train stuff. My education is about how to inhabit that space with that young dog who's telling us so much stuff and do the learn, support, teach, learn, support, teach. I've got amazing training colleagues. They can go and train anything they like then on top. But that's secondary to learn, support, teach. There, there is an interesting sort of juxtaposition, I think, sometimes between what people expect, like what we want as as trainers, behaviorists, dog professionals to 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 tell people. Like puppy classes is a classic. Like in 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 an ideal world for me, puppy classes would be a two year course, you know, and, mm. and you know, and it would be you know a week you know a week of online without the dog sort of like you know lectures talking about all of these things giving the puppy voice listening to them what are they trying to tell us what do they need in terms of their development from an ethology um ethology sort of standpoint um i would look at some training in there because like you say life skills but again it's not it's not you know it's not a case of i can make my dog do this it's this is how they they you know will fit into our human society i know that's another another topic but that's what people want that's their expectations mm. um uh it yeah is it, there is that constant sort of like button up between what people are like oh i come to a puppy class because i want to teach my dog to wait at the side of the road and not pull me on the lead and you were talking yeah. about loosely walking it's an interesting one um because often loosely walking if someone comes to you as a dog trainer with a loosely walking issue it's not very rarely is it a the problem is my dog pulls. The problem is my dog doesn't feel safe. My dog is not getting enough mm. um, off lead time, you know, um, you know, the, all of these kind of things. So you have to delve into the emotional experience of the animal in order to help someone get over what they might think is a really simple issue that should be able to be fixed with a bit of squeezy cheese, you know? Um, yeah. you, and I hear the things we talked about earlier about <clears throat> the kind of cake and the three A's and kind of thing, they can have all those expectations. I've got amazing colleagues who, who run puppy classes and adolescent classes in a very different way mm. because they are letting them, be, yeah, your dog will walk better on the lead. Your dog will be able to sit at the curb. Your dog will be able to do all these things. When that dog's brain is already foundated in safety and, and able to self-regulate, and we know that actually all juvenile mammals are designed to dysregulate. We also know that that more modulating yeah. part of the brain that helps us regulate is later. So actually, um, we we need to um, we need to be better at thinking about okay, th these are the discussions we have now. Of course, how do we still provide the stuff that we do? As I say, any trainers listening, you don't have to reinvent the wheel here. It's a case of thinking right. I can still do that stuff, but this is a great opportunity for to let them know. Let's meet your puppy. Mm. Let's meet your dog. Let's see what they can and can't do, because um, you know all the pre all the things we think about regarding us as human beings about social decency, rule of law, and everything else, and and all that kind of stuff. We can all be that, as long as we have a good start. Actually, um, I'm giving a talk in later on in the year, um, and I've called it um, "Devil Dogs and Monsters," because it's really easy mm -hmm. to class dogs who have who are aggressive or humans who have done horrible things you know as a devil dog or a monster because our brain will say well that can't be me well guess what with with our 
genetics, our secure attachments, our early start in life, it probably wouldn't be us. Mm. So we have to think really hard now what the science is telling us about neurological development, about physiological development, about not just physical safety, but emotional safety and social safety. And what a great opportunity we have in our classes to, to help people go through that, whilst also doing the fun stuff. You know, uh, Gwen Johnson, who's a great trainer, I met her at the, at the Gundog conference, and it was a really great time for me because I thought, God, God dog training's really cool, isn't it? Because I don't do much of it. And I definitely don't want anybody to think I'm anti it because I thought, oh, God, you're doing cool stuff. And Gwen was like doing a showpiece and she was like, where's the joy? Where's the joy? And I thought mm. that's what we want with dog training. Mm. I got, oh so God, actually, I'm so singing from that hymn sheet. Mm. I just I, I want to hear from people like yourself, Andrew, who are really um, cheerleading, you know, thinking of things a little bit differently, but also that still maybe what what training you do do you know, that kind of thing or what, you know, or maybe like, maybe it's for those that are coming up and sort of thinking, that's the approach I want to take, but I'm also struggling to get clients on board. So therefore I'm now doubting what I'm doing. Maybe it's hearing case studies from people like yourself, like, okay, so I took this approach, we did all of this, and then we implemented, implemented this training so that these new trainers coming in are, are feeling confident about these things and that they know they're hearing success stories and, you know, that kind of stuff. And I have to tell you, having my own clients, but also supporting other colleagues who have who've come to me and said, I want to do my classes differently. Mm. And we've looked at it. And remember, it, it's not a cliff edge. You, you make a tweak, you make a tweak, you yeah. make a tweak. You, but the vast majority of the general public, and in fact, I personally don't know anecdotally of anybody who's like, this is rubbish, have seen more value in doing it this way. They're like, that's interesting. Mm. Wow, I never knew that. And actually, that makes sense to me, actually to help my dog be more well-rounded before I start having extra things asking them. The problem with a task-oriented approach, regardless of how you do it, if the task can't be completed, somebody's to blame, the dog's not good enough, the caregiver doesn't feel good enough, or the dog trainer thinks, I can't do my job yeah. because I've already gone down the task cul-de-sac. Yeah. Having a care approach, which is, how are you feeling today? How's the dog doing today? What this is what we're kind of going to think about today. What we, what how can we get that? What can we get from this? I I find trainers love that more because it's easy to get stuck in a rut of training plans. It's more dynamic this way. It's like yeah, because you end up feeling more like a coach, more like a teacher, mm. more like how do we get the best out of this relationship? What's going on here? How do we look at that? Whilst also adding in things that is actually practical and tasky. Mm. Uh, so actually, this is a beautiful thing. And um, as I say, we I don't like some of the narratives I see who are kind of that are a bit anti-training. And I, I get what they're. But we've got to meet the general public where they are. This thing about supporting awareness in a different way is the key. But professionals have to understand it. It's why I love educating about it, because um, it invites people to think, yeah, I've got that mindset shift now. Because if you look slightly to the left or right uh, for away from the received wisdom, you get it more you have to but you have to get it you know you have to feel it um and that's why we have to invite colleagues to feel it and um uh this is why i love going talking to training organizations i've been invited to a few to invite people let's feel it what does it feel like what does this mean then like you said corinne it's okay so what does what would that look like then mm. what little shifts do you make um you know what might you start off your sessions with a little bit differently what instead of asking people to do homework tasky 
what might it be like feeding back about observations from yeah, that week? That's, mm. All these kind of things really build up stuff. Most of the general public, they don't want to be a dog trainer. No. <laughs> I know. Uh, so actually, but they do care. Mm. Yeah. And, and this is our biggest shield against the aversive narrative. Because when people realise that actually they're being lied to and gaslighted by that view of behaviour that somehow, bear in mind a lot of the time the dogs are deliberately put into situations to get a behaviour that can just be punished. Yeah. When people see it, they think that's really bad, isn't it? And I was like, yeah, it is, because now you see it. But we're all indoctrinated in the good-bad continuum. This notion that somehow behaviour is good or bad, and that's that has failed us a lot, you know. Uh, and um, so... I find with caregivers, the reason they love it so much is actually it releases themselves from that good, bad continuum. They're like, actually, I remember I had a lady who came to me not so long ago who'd, who'd been kicked out of a dog training class because the dog's a bit unruly. And it was hugely triggering for her because she was kicked out of school some 30 years ago. Oh. We spoke in these terms. She was like, God, you know, I, I feel better now. I, and, and, and this is the thing. So it's... A care approach is just about learning from the other first and creating a relational foundation learn support teach and then train what you like mm-hmm. i i heard a really interesting story the other day actually um that kind of speaks to a little bit about this do you know the comedian trevor noah you had trevor yeah, noah? Yeah, south Af- he's a yes, south african yes, comedian yes, yes. um and he uh he was telling a story um just came up on a podcast i was listening to actually about dogs and what changed his opinion of dogs and how to treat them and it was when he was a kid that so they they grew up in south africa and they didn't have a lot of money and he had two dogs that he absolutely loved. And um, his mum, uh, his mum on his birthday, I think, had asked him what he wanted for his dinner, what Trevor wanted for his dinner. And he said, oh, I want a, I want a beef burger. You know, uh, and she went out and got him a beef burger. And he ne- never got beef burgers. They never had beef burgers. And he was super excited. And he got this burger and he took one bite of it. And he said it was so amazing. That he, was, he was overwhelmed with the taste of this beef burger that... He had to put it down on the side and sort of like just go and think about it for a minute, like that first bite. And when he got back to his beef burger, of course, his two dogs had uh, had had it, basically. <laughs> they, were, they were sat down on the floor, crumbs, you know, licking their lips of the beef burger. And of course, he lost it. It's his birthday and it was his beef burger. Um, and he's shouting at the dogs and his mum comes in. She goes, Trevor, why are you shouting at the dogs? And Trevor's like, they've eaten my beef burger. I was like, I can't believe they do my beef burger. It's my birthday beef burger. I can't believe it. They're bad dogs. How do we stop them doing this? And she turned around to Trevor and said, Trevor, you cannot shout at a dog for being a dog. <laughs> I really <laughs> like that. I like that as a nice little anecdote and a nice way of sort of um, of, of wrapping this kind of conversation up a little bit mm. because there's a, there's a beauty in being a dog, you know, and, and we... we we're, we're constantly trying to stick square pegs in circle holes and, you know, and... Yes and jam them into our world and how they fit into our world and they must do this and they must do that and you're right i see a lot of guardians coming to puppy classes with eight week old puppies already looking like oh i'm a failure you know i failed at this because it's task Mm. orientated i haven't managed to do toilet training yet they're still you know i want them sleeping downstairs Mm. and you know they're crying all night or you know whatever it is and i think we need you know changing that narrative will be ultimately really freeing for everyone involved in the mm. profession for the guardians for everyone um and it's really nice to hear your 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 opinions there on training actually i really like it because it does have a place i do strongly believe that it's just it's how you apply it and in what you know in what 
in what way in, in what way is it supporting the bigger picture not just Ooh. look i can make a dog sit or i can you know or i can do these things and hopefully for any of our students or anyone listening to this podcast today um they'll take that away with them food for thought and everything's an invitation i see training as everything is a request uh because guess what the dog leave the door they went that learn, support, teach, and then train what you like after. It's a case of saying, Do you know what? You're in a great place now. Um, so I look at my three. There's my three. Right. Okay. Gorgeous. <laughs> Arthur's my my elderly collie now, but I look back at him in my early days and I trained too much with him because Arthur actually, I know, just wanted a relationship with me. And for that, he would have done anything. Mm. So I got him to do everything. And uh, this is the thing about guilt. I don't. I don't feel guilty. I learned something from that. And I think, yeah, that we've got to be careful with some of these dogs to kind of misconstrue that they're like, oh, I love all this. I actually just wanted to be with me. Mm. Harley, on the other hand, oh, my God, he would have been the toppest gun doggy person in the world. He loves training. He loves the kind of connection. He loves thinking about stuff. So I do stuff with him. I'm the worst. I'm not a particularly good trainer, I tell you now, um, because I've got amazing trainers that do training. But um, and I'm definitely a really rubbish gun dog trainer. So he's been very patient with me. <laughs> um, but he loves it. Molly, everything on her terms. She's the most sassy, <laughs> attitude-y, whatever diva that you'll ever meet. Uh, and um, so we have ended up having a very, does this work for you, Molly? And she's like, yeah, it works for me today, Dad. And I'm like, okay, let's do some stuff then and we'll have a bit of fun. But everything's on her terms and I love her for that. Mm. So that's just three dogs, you see. And I think that's what's missing sometimes with a task-orientated approach. So we as professionals need to feel the room. We need to feel that dog and be brave and say, maybe this isn't the activity. You know, I, I played the piano when I was young. My parents made me in inverted commas. They didn't see me in the garden with my tennis racket pretending to be Eric Clapton. So I, I really would have liked to have been a guitarist, really. Mm. But I played the piano. And interesting, you know, since my mother passed away, which is 10 years today, actually, um, I've not played the piano. Why? Because it was mom who'd be like, oh, if there's a piano in a pub, she'd be like, go and play the piano. And I wanted to please her. It's like Arthur. I wanted to please my parents and make them proud. So I played the piano. Bloody hate the piano. Don't like playing it. <laughs> uh and so that so I, I would have loved to have been that cool kid at school though with my guitar over my back and oh yeah i'd just play a little tune about i'd love that <laughs> so you have to just think about this i think that's the thing no absolutes but kindness no absolutes but welfare we've just got to think more and more about the individual lived experience of the person in front of us and the dog in front of us i think that's where we've gone full circle really it doesn't matter it's got nothing to do with dogs actually it's about us generally i think anyway yeah. I, I, I've uh, I've gone to a good place, Andy. It's you doing your dog drag show, and at the end, you get to live out your dream, and you pull your guitar over, and you and you play a song out for everyone at the end of the show. <laughs> Maybe if I dragged up as Dolly Parton with her guitar, it would, it would fulfil many of my husband's fantasies too. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> win win all round. It is a win win. Well, thank you so so much. It's always really. Um, brilliant to catch up always brilliant to talk um, i love the bigness of this as well like yeah i'm feeling pretty good about the conversations that yeah i'm feeling good i feel like i feel like we've been in a therapy session we should uh should send andy some money <laughs> <laughs> yeah checks payable too uh, yeah. right we, we've got a bit of a tradition we're going to do a fake buy um but don't sign off the zoom just yet because we'll do a real buy after our fake buy okay okay thanks fake again buy. andy bye bye <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,
Well, there we go, bookshelvers. Um, you what? can you can tell that was a really good interview because I've got loads of scrawlings on this bit of paper. In I know, front of and me. my head is whirling as well. <laughs> Always a pleasure to talk to Andrew. Um, yeah, and and really nice. I mean, really nice to hear um, those thoughts on how we should approach our own um, opinions of ourselves, our own mental well-being. Also, how how the you know going forward in this more dog dog centric approach to dog training, um, how we can all fit in. Uh, just a great conversation. Yeah, really great. I, I cheerleading Andy in in what he's doing. I've got a head at the moment, like whenever I've gone to see like a really good band and you and you come home and you have to sort of like then go to bed, but your head's still like, I'm still there in my brain. That's kind of, that's what I feel like. But yeah, having this conversation with Andy for a little while. Yeah. In your head. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, I hope you all enjoyed that bookshelvers. I hope there's something for everyone to take away from there. I'm sure there is. Um, uh, go and if, you, if you're not a member of the Dog uh, Centre Care facebook page as i said before definitely go and check it out um yeah um go and find all things andrew hale and, um, all things andrew hale all hail andrew hale has he ever used that before probably <laughs> had that before hasn't he? Uh, so. <laughs> so um to wrap up today then um i just wanted to um let everyone know again if you enjoy our thoughts about dogs the things we talk about the fun stuff we talk about then if you sign up to our packed mailing list, um, and that's just by literally going on our um, website, which is packed-dogs.com, right on the first page there, there's a little box you can tap your email in. You will be sent every Tuesday at lunchtime, conveniently, so you can have your lunch and read it. What we are like to what we like to call packed lunches. See what we did there, um, uh, and that is basically just a story, something to think about, something funny. From it could be from any one of us, any one of the packed teams. So it might be Jay, Corin, myself, Natalie. Um, first one went out this week, and it was uh, it was a piece written by me about uh, my origins, what got me into dog training, and and the the first dog that ignited my passions into the world of dog behavior um uh and this week spoilers uh it's pillow talk it's pillow talk i'll, I'll just leave that there leave there it there yeah. yeah and that one's written by corin so yeah if you would like to know what pillow talk is all about then go and sign up for our mailing list obviously we'll send you other things um in the mailing list as well things that packed are doing um things about the podcast as well so it's well worth doing it um whilst you're on the website as well if you are interested in hearing more details about dog x the upcoming conference in october yes. on the 6th you can register your interest so if you click on the dog x uh little tab you will find yourself a little place where you can pop your email and then you will hear about all the details and when yeah. the tickets will be released yep um we're doing a special offer on tickets um that's coming soon and also you'll get to hear who is going to be speaking before anyone else, bookshelvers, for anyone who, who doesn't want to be first to get that sort of information. Um, and as we talked to with uh, Andrew, Pact will be, the gang will be at Crufts this year. So if any of you are going to Crufts, pop along and say hello. Please come say hi. I'll be there every day. Yeah, Corin, <laughs> Corin does the whole thing. Um, I think Nat's doing the whole thing this year yep, as well. So yep. Corin and Nat are going to be there all the time. I'm going to be there on Sunday. 
um come in like sweep in for the glory at the end yeah that's when me and nat run off for a little bit for a bit of fun yeah and i have to pack the stand up while you two go to the gin tent yeah Yeah, i know gin tent that sounds like a conference isn't it um but we're in hall three yeah you'll find us in hall three uh we can put in the details um yeah we'll we'll be updating um but that's only in a couple of weeks so um i'm not sure if uh, there'll be another podcast before then but yeah pop over it's in a month actually it's in a month so there will be another podcast before then so we'll we'll update you with a little bit more information about that well that was wonderful cathartic it was it was really good actually great i want to go downstairs now and uh and process everything yeah yeah there's a bit of processing and have dinner and dinner (laughs) dinner and process there's two dogs downstairs that want their dinner i can tell you that much (laughs) all right gang um we will see you next time and as ever we'll have grant sharky play us out with his wonderful song grow you guys take care if you've got any questions anything you want us to talk about stick them on the old facebook group or indeed you can email barksfrom at gmail.com um uh we love getting emails don't we we absolutely adore it um all right, nothing left to do but say goodbye. 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 Atoms collide, ourselves divide, just like they Spark a life, we multiply this ride, has just begun. And here at the end of a line that stretches back through all time, To simply survive Survive You can't keep it down You know It grows Genes compete This war is never won Numbers increase For reason and peace Are mass as one We're strong And we're opposition exists it's our duty to persist resist and fight and defend till the end another's right to all this this bliss a wish
I guess you can't keep me down, you know. And I can't keep you down, I know. And it 